0: This is a Dalina University production. Hello, and welcome back. My name is Konstantin Andreev, and this is the second lecture in the Universal Language series. In the first lecture, we looked at several important lingua francas throughout history to see what makes people communicate in someone else's language. There is one lingua franca, however, that I didn't mention, simply because it deserves an entire lecture of its own. It is by far the most international language the world has ever seen and as such it would seem to be the hottest contender for the title of universal language. I am, of course, talking about English. To demonstrate just how far English has come as a language of wider communication, I wouldn't need to go any further than myself. I am a Russian working at a Swedish university. I teach students from countries as different and as far apart as Sweden and Iran, Italy and China, France and Bangladesh, to name just a few. I teach English. The language of instruction is English. Several of our teachers do come from places such as Australia and the United States. Still, a student from Portugal or Slovakia can spend a whole term here and speak nothing but English without ever running into a so-called native speaker of English. And needless to say, by the time she goes back to Lisbon or Bratislava, her English will still have improved. In fact, if I had to make an educated guess, I would bet that you grew up speaking a language other than English. According to cautious estimates, there are two second language speakers of English for every mother tongue speaker. Less cautious researchers say that second language speakers might already outnumber native anglophones by three to one. No matter how you count, that's more than a billion people. It's hard not to be impressed. How on earth did this happen? How did English grow so big? This is the question I'll try to shed some light on in this lecture. If you remember our first lecture, you will already have a hunch that the unprecedented success of English has precious little to do with the structure of the language. You might venture a guess that, in order to explain its success, we need to look at its history. And you'll be absolutely right. Let's have a look at our list of things that make a language go international. I have slightly rearranged the list to make it better fit the story, but, as we shall see. Every single one of these factors has contributed to the rise of English. In fact, we will have to introduce a seventh factor, new technology. This factor is closely intertwined with some of the others, but in the case of English, it has played such a prominent role that it deserves to stand on its own. But let's begin from the beginning. The story of English as a lingua franca starts with commerce and conquest. tradesmen or, as we would call them today, business people, have always needed a universal language more than most other people. In the world of business, a common language directly translates to money, and so the incentive to find one is particularly great. In fact, the medieval Mediterranean pigeon that gave us the very term lingua franca was born in negotiations between Italian, French and Arab merchants. The first Europeans to circumnavigate Africa and reach India were Portuguese tradesmen, As a result, the Portuguese language remained an important lingua franca in and around the Indian Ocean for nearly three centuries. When the Dutch and the British started elbowing out the Portuguese from the region, their merchant fleets had to resort to the language of their competitors, if they wanted to be understood by the locals. This state of linguistic affairs, however, could not last forever. In the year 1600, Queen Elizabeth I of England granted a trading monopoly in South Asia to the British East India Company. A century and a half later, this commercial enterprise had outcompeted both the Portuguese and the Dutch. In fact, it was doing so well that it had essentially taken over the management of the Mughal Empire, which had ruled most of India for several centuries. In modern terms, that would be roughly equivalent to British Petroleum ruling Russia, or, for that matter, to the Russian gas monopoly Gazprom, taking political control of the European Union. It wasn't until 1858 that India became a political rather than corporate possession of the British. By then, English was already set to become the new lingua franca of the region. It was also a search for economic gain, albeit of a different kind, that first brought English to the West Indies. Starting in the mid-16th century and well into the 18th, English-speaking pirates plundered and seized up to several dozen Spanish ships a year. They were led by valiant men such as Francis Drake, often directly accountable to the English crown. This activity had the double benefit of refilling the state treasury and undermining the Spanish presence in the Caribbean. Eventually, pirate fleets were rebranded as the Royal Navy, pirate bases turned into towns. English merchants and slave traders started nudging out their Spanish, Dutch and French competition. In other words, English acquired its first solid foothold in the so-called New World. We can see that that English-speaking wealth seekers were a huge boost for the language. But of course they were not the only force driving British ships and their English-speaking crews to distant shores. Political power, with its inbuilt lust for conquest, was at least as important. Sometimes the conquest came as a result of a classic drive for new land. A good example is Ireland, arguably the very first colonial possession of the English crown. It was definitively conquered and put under an English-speaking administration by the early 17th century. Today irish Gaelic is one of the official languages of the EU, but less than 2% of Ireland's population actually use it as a language of daily communication. Everyone else uses English. Sometimes England simply didn't want to be outdone by its European competitors, even if this meant a direct confrontation with another colonial power. In their imperial career, the British captured much of the Caribbean from the Spanish, Canada from the French, and South Africa from the Dutch, cite just a few examples. Sometimes the expansion was spurred by religious tensions at home. Starting in 1620 and onwards, Puritans, Quakers and other Christian sects chose to flee the Anglican Church by crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Most of them settled in the northeast of what today is the United States. Sometimes Britain would send its people overseas as a way of punishing them. Australia famously owes its British legacy and its English to the overpopulation of English prisons. The first shiploads of English-speaking convicts reached the continent in 1788. In fact, so varied were their reasons for capturing new lands that even the British themselves sometimes appeared to be losing track of their own excuses. A 19th century British historian was moved to observe that his countrymen seemed to have conquered and peopled half the world in a fit of absence of mind. Whatever their reasons, the British did an impressive job of planting their language all over the globe. By the year 1900, over a quarter of the Earth's land mass was under direct political control of one of the two English-speaking powers, either the British Empire itself or its fast-growing offshoot, the United States. Between its declaration of independence in 1776 and the First World War, the former colony bought vast swathes of land from the French and the Russians, it seized Florida and the Philippines from Spain, it annexed Hawaii as well as a huge chunk of Mexico. The United States did let go of the Philippines soon after the Second World War, but it continued to, quote-unquote, project dominance throughout the 20th century. Things might be changing now, but as recently as in the 1990s, the US was probably the most powerful political entity that has ever existed on this planet. We have now seen the immense territory that has found itself under English-speaking rule over the last few centuries. But new territory alone is not enough to make a language big. You have to populate it with speakers of the language. In several cases, this happened quite literally. Of course, the first settlers were always outnumbered by the indigenous population. But they had far better weapons and they brought new diseases. These were often lethal for the locals and could exterminate entire tribes in a matter of months. The newcomers also had relatively advanced agriculture This meant that they had more food, and because they had more food, they had more children that lived long enough to become adults. And then there were always new ships, bringing new settlers. Considering all this, it is hardly surprising that the population of the United States alone grew from 4 to 76 million people in just a 100 years. Today, an estimated 330 million people all over the globe speak English as their native language. Yet... English would not be a world language if it only had its native speakers to show for itself. After all, the largest country where English has official status is not the United States. It is India. According to one estimate, over a 100 million Indians may use English on a daily basis as a second language. These people are not descended from English-speaking settlers. In fact, their ancestors spent many a decade fighting against their British rulers. Why then does English persist in India? Why does it persist in places like Gambia, Kenya or Nigeria, several decades after the colonizers left? Well, one reason is that a multilingual country such as India or Nigeria might want to keep English as a compromise language, a lingua franca that is no one's mother tongue. Another crucial reason, however, brings us right back to our list. In India and elsewhere, the British left behind an education system that functioned in English. In India, this is especially true of university-level education. In some African countries, English reaches all the way down to day one of primary school. But the rule is the same. You want to get access to learning, you have to speak English. As we have seen, this is not very different from a Swedish university. Most undergraduate courses in Sweden are still taught in Swedish, that's true. But even undergraduates are often expected to read textbooks written in English. And the further you go up the education ladder, the more English you have to cope with. Let us say you're a Swede doing PhD research in chemistry. Already back in 1961, 43.3% of all journal papers on chemistry worldwide were published in English. In 1975, 58.3%. 1990, 74%. The year 2000, 82%. Even if there are research results out there that do still appear in languages other than English, you, a Swedish chemist in 2011, are only vaguely aware of their existence. Every single paper you read and write is in English. Scandinavia was never ruled by an English-speaking power, so this can't be a leftover from the colonial days. As usual, there are several reasons why English is today's lingua franca of science. First of all, science needs institutions. And England has had universities for 800 years. Science also needs funding, a lot of it, and English-speaking countries have been among the wealthiest on this planet for centuries. Finally, other prominent languages of science have eliminated themselves from the competition. French dropped out of the race when the French colonial empire collapsed without leaving behind a francophone United States or even a francophone Australia. German got caught up in Nazism and soon lost its best scientists to the Americans. Russian got caught up first in communism and then in the collapse of communism, and it has been losing scientists to the Americans ever since. And that is still not the whole story of English as a world language. Nazi Germany was defeated in just a few horrible years by planned military action. The defeat of the Soviet Union was several decades in the making. And though there certainly was some military action by proxy, one of the things that actually brought down communism was cultural influence, cultural influence of the English-speaking world. Already in the 1960s, some Soviet youngsters were trying to learn English from their Beatles records, just like their Swedish peers, except the records were harder to come by. By the 1980s, Soviet citizens were just as fascinated by English-language pop music and American movies as was everyone else. In Eastern Europe, this happened even earlier. Czech or Hungarian teenagers couldn't care less about the Russian classes they had to suffer through at school. Russian may have had the troops, but it didn't have the rock and roll. In other words, it had none of the cultural prestige of English. Unlike Russian, English also came to be associated with an ideology that had lasting appeal, because it actually seemed to work. At the very least, it seemed to work without political censorship or large-scale repression. In the second half of the 20th century, to millions of people throughout Europe, English meant freedom of speech, free travel, democracy, and political change. What is even more important, pretty much everywhere, English has come to stand for wealth and success. The historical reasons for this connection might not be entirely praiseworthy, but many will argue, with good reason, that the language itself is hardly to blame for that. After all, it is just a system of signs, a code a tool for doing business, for studying chemistry, or for talking to a Swedish boyfriend, just like your laptop. This talk of tools and laptops finally brings us to new technology, the last major factor that has contributed to the rise of English. For the reasons we've already discussed, in the last couple of centuries, the English-speaking world has been responsible for a lot of new technology. Even things invented elsewhere have often had to make it to the US before their potential was noticed, and put to proper commercial use. Think of trains, telephones, sound recording, airplanes, sound film, mobile phones. Think especially of personal computers, the Internet, social networks. To borrow an analogy from Nicholas Ostler in his excellent book Empires of the Word, computers have been to English what cuneiform writing was to Akkadian, one of the ancient languages of Mesopotamia. In both cases, one language became closely linked with the most advanced information technology of the time. For Acadian, this connection meant more than a thousand years of continuous lingua franca use in its part of the world. How long English is going to reign supreme is anyone's guess. So far, the tide of English has seemed unstoppable. It has swept the world, and at first glance, it doesn't show any signs of abating. So, is this it? Will English keep growing forever? Is English the long-awaited universal language that will bring about the end of Babel? This lecture is already long enough, as it is, so I'm afraid there has to be a change of plan. And this is why we'll return to this question in Lecture 4, when we try to peek into the linguistic future of the world. But before we do that, we need to consider two other kinds of languages, quite distinct from the ones we've looked at so far. Both kinds are actually created as lingua francas, though in very different circumstances and by very different people. To find out more, watch Lecture 3 of the Universal Language series. Thank you.